how does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together? Clearly, the Bible says that God is sovereign. He is all over all things. But at the same time, we have some basic commands like go and do something, go and evangelize. God tells us to pray. God tells us to love one another. But God is sovereign and we're supposed to do stuff. How do those things actually work together? Are they contradictory? I'm sure it's a question that perhaps you have asked before. I certainly have asked it before. What's interesting is that in our passage today, from the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, we actually see them working together, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, in the story that we have this morning of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And we see today how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not contradictory, but in fact they are complementary. And we have this awesome example in this story of evangelism and God saving. We continue through the book of Acts, which is a record of how the church's foundation was laid through the disciples and the early believers in their preaching of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Right? They're preaching Jesus who had been crucified, but who rose from the dead. This book of Acts was written by a man named Luke, who was a first century follower of Jesus. He was a physician turned Christian missionary. And, and Luke, you'll see in the Gospel of Luke, or the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, written by Luke, you can see there that in the beginning, um, what he sought to do was to go and investigate and then to write down a faithful record of who this Jesus was, the ministry of Jesus. And in the book of Luke, Luke records there the Gospel of Luke. Luke records the ministry of Jesus while he was on earth. And then in the book of Acts, which we look at today, the book of Acts, it records the ministry of Jesus who had already been raised. You can think about the ministry of Jesus who is in heaven. Acts is about the ministry of Jesus in heaven because right before he rose from the dead, he gave his disciples this mission. If you go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I invite you to turn with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you can see like this theme verse for the whole entire book. Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, he says, but disciples, guess what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You can think about it in concentric circles here. Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then it pushes out to the final category, to the end of the earth. The book of Acts shows us exactly how that plays out. The chapters thus far, if you've been with us, we know that it focuses on the preaching of the gospel there in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, we see this branch out, the spreading out, the blowing down of categories into Judea and Samaria. And soon, we get to the end of the earth. As we saw last time, the focus on chapter 8, let me invite you to turn there. It was on this guy named Philip who went to Samaria to preach the gospel. He's a deacon or a servant of the church. Many people there in Samaria come to know Jesus Christ. And there the, the church of Samaria is established. Now as we continue here, we see that God has yet another mission for Philip, the servant of the church. What is it? It is to evangelize a particular person who then goes, we think, to help bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to Africa. Really, we have the conversion story of what we think is the first African Christian coming to know Jesus. This, again, is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And again, as we go through this record here, 
we actually want to pay attention to how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together. They are complementary, not contradictory, as God works to bring about His will. Look there at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. And we look first at the call. We look first at Philip's call. You look there at verses 26 and 27. I'll go ahead and read that now. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a coastal area of the Mediterranean. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. So after Philip had evangelized Samaria, he returns to Jerusalem. Then he gets another call from God by the Lord, later identified in verse 29 as the Spirit. So the angel of the Lord speaks. Verse 29 says it's the Spirit of God. Uh, And he says, look, this is a desert place. Go to the road that goes down from Jerusalem, more inland, to Gaza. You see so clearly that this is no accident here. God himself is directing the events, God's sovereignty, for his purposes. And Philip does what God's people do when they hear God's call, at least those who are faithful. He goes. You can think of Abraham hearing God's call and him going. You can think of Samuel hearing God's call and then him responding. Safe to assume that he knows what his general mission will be as the angel of the Lord tells him to do this. I mean, he's been preaching the gospel already in Samaria. He had already been doing this. So he hears and then he goes. When he hears the call, he responds. Now, today, let's, let's try and think today, okay? Now, these days, there are some Christians who speak of receiving a call from the Lord. But really, what they're doing is they're equating this call to their feelings and what gives them peace. So they might say something like, I feel God is telling me to, you know, I don't know, change jobs or go to this school or go to that school or even date this person, get married to this person. But I actually think that this language can be really unhelpful. This language can be potentially really unhelpful. Now, no one's coming to mind here in this congregation, so I'm not putting anybody on blast. But I do think it's unhelpful. Let me tell you why. It often confuses, like this, this language people use in the sense that they are equating personal desire with the will of God. Personal desire equals the will of God. And so it, it, the call of God is equated with what I feel gives me peace. What I feel gives me peace, right? If I feel peace and at peace with some decision or Uh, various things, then therefore it is the call of God or God is leading me to do a certain something. In one of my last churches, there was a gal who was a non-member and she said, God told me to get divorced because I fell out of love with my husband and I fell in love with another man. My answer to that, if she were to ask me that, I heard this through the pastor there. My answer to that, his answer was, no, he didn't. How do we know he didn't? Because God says so in his revealed word, in the word of God. And what he says determines what he, we as his people are to do. Not our intuition, no matter how peaceful or at peace we may be about it. We never want to let our uh, rely on subjective feelings over the word of God, right? Do not rely on your subjective feelings over the word of God. Why is it? Because the Bible tells us that our consciences can actually be seared. That we can be hardened to the truth. 1 Timothy 4, 2. 
In James 1.22, the Bible tells us that sin itself, which is in all of us, is self-deceiving. Right? So therefore, if our consciences can be seared to God's truth, and number two, sin is self-deceiving in our own lives, we ought never give our own intuition over the Word of God. When it comes to the Word of God, it says that divorce, in some circumstances, like if your spouse commits adultery, is permissible. It doesn't mean they automatically should do it. There's a lot of people who continue to endure uh, and they end up forgiving and there's fantastic reconciliation which displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But in some circumstances, it is permissible. But getting divorced from your husband because you no longer have fuzzy feelings in your heart for them is not one of them. Not all of your desires are from God. Therefore, it's good to question your desires. So guys, if you think that God is calling you to do something that's not in His revealed will, pray about it as you pour over the Word of God to see what God has definitely said. Check with your fellow members of the church. Check with your elders and get wisdom. You want to let the Word of God sit in judgment over everything of you, including your desires. If your instinct is to say, well, you know what, God told me. Well, let me encourage you, you had better allow Christians here in the church to say, actually, no, he didn't. That's what one pastor told me recently, and I thought it was so good. There it is. If your gut instinct is to say, God told me, you had better allow the church, this church, church you might join in the future, etc., to say, actually, no, he didn't, because that's not in the Word of God or because the Word of God directly reveals what God wants of you in that, in that situation. This is the way it worked in the Corinthian church. As the church was to sit in judgment and weigh the prophecies, they could say, no, that is not of God. Friends, let me, let me encourage you, Christians, if you refuse to allow Christians in the church to say, no, he didn't, that's actually how you know you use God as an excuse to be God for yourself. If you come to church, right, and there's this category that if I desire to do something, and I must say it's the call of God, and you know that when you come to church, you're not going to let anybody tell you, no, he didn't say that based on the word of God. If you don't have a category for that, that is, that maybe how you know that you're using God as an excuse to be God for yourself, to do what ultimately you want and not what God desires of you. Friends, we could go on about discerning God's will for your lives. And it is a really important thing to study. A great book to follow up this brief conversation is Kevin DeYoung's book um, on the will of God. What is that book called, Oscar? What is that book called? Just do something. You go to Google it, buy it, like 80 pages or something like that. Get together with another Christian friend, read that together, especially if this kind of confuses you. If you come from the Pentecostal church background, which many of you guys do, uh, let me encourage you to go ahead and read that. For Philip's situation, as he received this call, right, we got to acknowledge like this is unusual compared to what we see in the Bible, generally speaking. But just as we know that God moved in unusual ways at high points in God's salvation history, so he's doing that here with Philip. He's bringing the gospel to the first time to, in the, for the first time to Samaria and here with this African man here. 
Christian, let's look at the big picture for us today. All Christians today have the general call, right? The general call, the general command from God to evangelize. Matthew 28, you can think of the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. 1 Peter 4, we're ready to be, we are supposed to be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. 1 Peter, you can think of also Titus about how even our lives, to some degree, testify in such a way to make Christ look good, as one pastor recently put it. This is the will of God for all of his people, for you church members. I wonder how preoccupied are you about sharing the gospel of Jesus? Are you responding to God's call and command, a general call and command to make disciples of those he has placed you around, those he brings into your life? You realize that they are your mission field, so to speak. Are you concerned with witnessing to Christ in your words and living in his love in such a way that shapes your character, the way you live for his honor? Or do you find yourself preoccupied with where God is taking you and the people he's introducing you to for your own honor, for your own advancement? It's a good question to think about. First, we, hear, we see clearly that Philip hears the call. Now we see what happens when they make contact. So we got the call. Now we move to the contact. Um, going on the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, right? It's more inland. Now he's moving um, sort of southward and coastal. Who does he meet there? Verse, verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This is really interesting here. If you think about God's big picture, Acts 1-8, right? God bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. His plan is to take this gospel to the ends of the earth through his people so that he would make himself a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people. And who does he meet? Philip meets this African man on a road in Philistine territory. Like that in and of itself is really fascinating. It says there that he is an Ethiopian. The term refers to a people known uh, today as the Sudanese people in Africa, right south of Egypt if my geography memory serves me right. So they are the, the Sudanese, the people of Sudan. And, and this guy here, it says, is a eunuch. That is, he's an officer in a ruler's court. Oftentimes these eunuchs were assigned to uh, women's quarters. Perhaps they became women, uh, sorry, eunuchs because they were serving in women's quarters. Uh, some were truly eunuchs, that is, castrated males, but not all of them. And even those who were not, it seems that these men who served in the ruler's court still carried the title of a eunuch. So to say that this man is a eunuch, it means that he is serving in this royal court, in this court. This guy here was a court official of, what does it say there, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is uh, an inherited title, it seems, referring to the queen. A little bit in the same way that we use the word pharaoh. Um, so it's not entirely, we're not entirely sure that that was her actual name, but that certainly was her title. And he served the queen. I mean, this guy's like a big baller right here. He served the queen by being in charge of all of her treasure. He is like the CFO of her kingdom. We think of God's plan to bring in the nations and bring in the Gentiles. Here we have a very high-powered African man. But guys, guess what? It actually says that... it. The verse actually leads us to believe that he is a Jewish convert. He's a God-fearer already. How do we know that? Notice why he's on the trip in the first place. Uh, verse 27, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, just like so many hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the empire, Africa even, went to Jerusalem for the feast, 
right? You got the Feast of Passover. You had the Feast of Pentecost. He, it seems, is there to worship with other Jews. You guys know what happens if you're a Christian and have been following with us in the book of Acts. You know what happened in Jerusalem in the days leading up to this meeting here, this contact. One wonders if this African man saw Christ crucified on the cross during Passover. One wonders if he saw and heard the people mocking Jesus for saying he was the eternal Son of God, the chosen one of God. One wonders if he had witnessed the city's commotion after the resurrection of Christ, when the leaders of Jerusalem were sending out this falsehood, saying that the disciples stole Jesus' body. Maybe he was there later on after Christ's ascension and when he charges the disciples to go out. Maybe he was there at Jerusalem at the temple gates where he saw that crippled man get healed by the power of God and where he heard Peter herald the gospel of Jesus Christ saying that Christ is the author of life who not just heals the body but does the more difficult thing of forgiving sins and healing the soul. Did he hear about the author of life who is the servant of God prophesied in the Old Testament to die on the cross for the sins of his people? Scripture is actually silent on that. One can wonder. But regardless, we know that here on this desert road, as he is by himself returning to Africa from Jerusalem, he was certainly reading about him. Look there at verse 28. Look there at verse 28. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This is incredible. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament, which speaks so clearly about God's Savior, who is also God's suffering servant. I'll go ahead and read the rest of the uh, conversation here that they have uh, when they make contact. They're having a conversation, right? You look there at verse 29. Let's see what this, what this conversation is like. And the Spirit said, there you see again, God's directing what's going on. God the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's incredible. I mean, if you're Philip, that is, that is incredible. My mind would have been blown away because I have such little faith that God could orchestrate things in such a way so as to bring about his will and have this man eventually come to know Jesus. He's not only reading Isaiah the prophet, but he's reading what is most possibly the most famous prophecy of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. Now turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, this was written about 700 years prior to Jesus' coming. Just listen about how it speaks about this man who suffers, not for the wrongdoings of his own, but for the wrongdoings of others. There's a substitution here that's prophesied of that happens by one man, the righteous one, 
on behalf of the unrighteous. Look there at verse 4, 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see God's sovereignty and his providence in bringing about his purposes here, right? We see that first God gives Philip the call to go to this desert road. Then God directs him to this man who's already reading about the suffering servant, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the one who bore our punishment so that other people would have peace. This is God's orchestration here. And then Philip, you know, he catches up to the chariot. Mind you, uh, do not think like this guy is a world-class runner and he's sprinting at 30 miles an hour. This chariot here could also just be describing an ox-drawn wagon, right? (laughs) And then so he's not yelling like, you know, out of breath, saying, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Just think like it's a walking pace probably. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, well, how can I unless I have a guide? Come up and join me. He says, okay. He gets up into the, the, the wagon there. And this is what they read. They continue Isaiah 53, like a sheep. You look, to, look in the book of Acts there, chapter 8. Like a sheep, he that is the Messiah was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. The eunuch asks the question, is the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? Now again, right, if you guys, are fami- if you guys have ever experienced what you think to be a God-orchestrated event where someone comes to know Jesus Christ, right? If I'm Philip, I would have thought, like, what a softball question. Thank you, God, for this softball question. He says, let me tell you about this someone else. Verse 35 there, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What a great example of how evangelism happens. God places us around people people who need to hear the gospel. Many of them are searching. In fact, everybody is searching for something. And what are we to do? What are we to be? God's people are here guides. We are guides showing the way, guiding the people to the good news of Jesus from the word of God. How do you Christians feel about that? By nature of you being a Christian, having received the call to evangelize, Of course, being born again, worshiping the king, now you are an instrument for his purposes, a citizen of his kingdom, an ambassador on behalf of the heavenly kingdom. You are to be a guy showing other people the way to Jesus based on the word of God. Now, if you struggle with fear, which I certainly have at various times in my Christian life, you might say, oh, well, but this guy, this guy was really seeking. He was already reading reading the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah. He was already reading about the suffering servant. He had it easy. It's easy to be a guide to someone like that. It's so hard to be a guide to other people. Therefore, maybe I'm just not going to do it. I get the instinct to say that, right? I get the fear there. But know this, guys. Our responsibility and ability to witness to Jesus is not dependent on other people at all. One bit. Our responsibility and ability to witness to Jesus is not dependent on other people at all one bit. That type of thinking, I mean, it really says I can only witness successfully 
to those who are already seeking out Christianity and Jesus Christ. But guys, that's actually completely false. It's based on a false definition of success. The definition of success needs to be changed. We know that God is the one who saves, meaning successful evangelism, we've got to think about what evangelism is too, a definition here, happens regardless of the outcome. To evangelize is simply to witness. God never says, look guys, what I want you to do is find people who are already intrigued by Jesus, who already like him, and then you witness to them because it's more likely that they're going to be saved based on chance. He just simply says, go out and witness. Regardless of who they are, he says, go out and witness. So your ability to be a witness to Jesus Christ is not dependent upon other people. Your ability to witness completely depends on whether you receive the call of Christ to evangelize and whether you will be faithful to it. You think about a courtroom situation. There was a time where I thought I might have to be called on to testify in court against somebody. And right, why would my ability to witness to the truth depend on him? It doesn't. Now, if I'm scared of him, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't know if I can witness here. Maybe I'll go run away. Maybe I'll go to a witness protection plan. I never have to talk about Jesus again. Uh, but if God is overseeing everything, if I have confidence in the system or the officer right there who's going to draw his gun and shoot the bad guy who's going to try and kill me because I'm witnessing against this guy over here, if I have confidence in who's overseeing the whole process, I'm good. Christian, you realize that's exactly how we should be thinking about this? Our ability and responsibility, or the responsibility that we have in witnessing depends not on other people or how they respond, but entirely on has Jesus commanded us to do it? And if the answer is yes, then we ought to do it. But Christian, if you, do, if you do struggle with fear, and again, like I struggle with fear at various times, you realize that everyone is seeking something. Everybody's seeking something. If you're a Christian, you too were seeking something when you were apart from Christ and didn't know Jesus. You know what life is like when you're seeking satisfaction in something, someone other than God, your Creator and Christ the King. If you're visiting with us, maybe you're exploring Christianity, right? We genuinely believe that everybody is seeking something. And actually, to do so, to seek something over seeking God, is the very nature of sin. We have been created for fellowship with the one and only God, our Creator. And we are actually designed to find rest in God, where we are satisfied in Jesus Christ, and where we desire more and more, God willing, to live according to Him. But if you go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, and here it's inherent in, in all of us, we basically said, I don't care, God. I don't care what you want me to do. And in view of that thing that we're seeking satisfaction in, right, we pushed away God. And now we seek something else. Now when God comes back into the picture, we say, scooch, God. You're blocking my view. I don't care. Move. And that just shows that you are disconnected from the source of life as you seek life in something else. You say, scooch over so I can pursue what I want to pursue, whether you say it's good or whether you say it's bad. I want it, and so I'm going to get it. But praise God, He gives us wake-up calls. He gives us wake-up calls. He lets us experience little or massive glitches in the systems that we try and set up for ourselves. Just think about your own problems and the fallout that comes from them. Think about the problems in the world where things might be right now going haywire. 
you realize that that's evidence that we are trying to draw life from the wrong source, from the bad source, when, friends, we have been designed for life in God. Imagine our lives are like light bulbs, right? And we plug ourselves into where we think we're going to get life and energy, a certain source of life. And when something goes wrong in our lives, that's like when the light bulb goes off, goes out, because we have been designed to be plugged into God, so to speak, and not the world. When the light bulb goes out, you pick it up, you knock it, you think, what in the world's going on? Something is wrong. Let me try and fix it. Now, at that moment, in your own discouragement, in your own despair, and all the things that are going haywire in your own life, you have the opportunity to either get another bulb, so to speak, and stick it back in that light source, the wrong one, or the world, or you get connected with God. When that relationship, for example, that you put all of your identity in and it doesn't work out, and so you despair. That's like us trying to feed our identity from the wrong place. Human relationships, the right source, that's the right source, over relationship with God. Or maybe you want to honor and glory in man or woman over God. Or, or take that guilt that you seem to drown in. Even though you did that thing, you know that thing that you feel so guilty about? You did that ages ago. Or that shame that you feel like you wear no matter where you go. And you realize that's evidence. That's evidence that you are drawing from the wrong source, so to speak. Maybe you want to be right in other people's eyes. Or maybe you want to be right in your own eyes. You want to be pure according to your own standards or pure according to other people's standards, but you care nothing for the purity of God, God who is the fountain of purity and holiness and righteousness. Whether we feel discouragement from, or any discouragement, or guilt, or shame, or lack of control, or anxiety in relation to the chaos you see in the world, the chaos in your own lives, we're supposed to inspect that thing, see how it went wrong, and then turn to the one who designed you. He is the true life source, so to speak, the one who can be, give us a new heart, the one who can cause us to be born again, your maker. Why would you not turn to the one who designed you or coded you, so to speak, that you might live life the way that you were designed to in relationship to him, worshiping him, living in such a way that brings honor and glory to him in Christ? Christians, God has helped us to see this satisfaction, obviously, in Christ and being in union with him. And even in our temptations, right, we struggle to plug into the wrong source as well. Praise the Lord. He has opened our eyes that we might turn to Christ and find satisfaction in Him. And since you know this, you are to be guides. Just like people may have guides for their careers, like professional coaches, or tutors for academics, Christians are to be guides for the soul. Not because we decided so, because this is what Christ has called us to. Just as other Christians were guides for us, so we are to be guides for others where we understand, of course, our true identity, our true satisfaction. In Christ, thank God, we have our guilt washed away, our shame covered, and most importantly, we are reconciled to God the Father, where we know God's love poured out into our hearts, God's peace poured out into our hearts because we have been adopted into His family and forgiven of all of our sin. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, this is why we as Christians call people to turn to God, Right? To be reconciled to God, our maker. He's the one who designed us. So we say, turn from living from yourself. That's sin. 
and turn to God. Repent of your sins and know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Praise God, He is the one who designed us. Naturally, He is the one that we find satisfaction in, and we can turn to Jesus Christ. If God wants us to be guides, then we must open our mouths. If God wants us to be guides, we must therefore open our mouths. You guys realize, Christians, that Satan wins when we choose to shut ours. Satan wins when we choose to shut our mouths. I've been super encouraged, you know, as I reflect on the years here at this church. I've been encouraged to see how so many of you guys have grown in your evangelism. How you guys have been exercising your gifts and growing in boldness as you share Jesus with other people. And then we have come here in this church to see other people repent of their sins and believe on Jesus. To be saved from eternal hell and to know eternal peace with God. Even if I, as I have spoken about stepping away as the senior pastor, uh, you know, of course, I've had various opportunities to reflect and to think about these things. And it's been really encouraging to think about um, how we have come to see people come to know the Lord and be baptized. Right? That has happened because some of you Christians chose to open your mouths and risk for Jesus Christ's sake. You've, been, you've chosen to be guides for others that they might know God for themselves and to go on in joy. As we see, that's what people do when they become Christians. And reflecting on some of you guys who, who are so bold in your evangelism, and some of you guys who even are not, but then at some moment God gives you unction by the Spirit and you too share the gospel. And thinking about all these different situations, I want us to learn from those whom I know are evangelizing. Let me just draw out some markers of who they are and their faith so that we might be able to emulate them or copy them. First, the evangelists that I talk to here in this congregation, they are grateful for their salvation in Christ. They are grateful. If you talk to them, they live and breathe a certain type of thankfulness for God's grace in Jesus Christ. And you hear this not just in, um, you know, so why did you choose to evangelize and stuff like that? It just comes out of them normally. I'm so thankful that, yeah, because I know what I deserved. I know I deserved hell because I sinned against God. I had, didn't care about Him at all, but, whoa, I'm so thankful for God and Jesus Christ. And I want to tell other people. All right, we talk about what we are amazed by. Are you amazed daily by the grace of God given to you in Jesus Christ? Secondly, secondly, they pray for opportunities to share Christ with others. They pray for, other, they pray for opportunities to share Christ with others. I was talking to someone the other day, and she was saying that she had been praying. She had been praying that God would give her more opportunities. And then soon after that, God brought along some random dude, some random guy. And she, so she was expressing her desire to God, right? I, I would like other opportunities, more opportunities to share the gospel with those I live around. And then God answered her prayer. How awesome is that? I wonder when the last time you prayed for opportunities to witness to Jesus Christ. Third, not only do they pray for opportunities, they seize opportunities. Talking to this guy, right? God brings this guy along to this gal and the gal and then her husband say, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Come back. We want to talk and explain this Jesus to you so that you would know salvation in him through faith, right? They knew that they were stewards of God's things. That is the gospel. They were entrusted with his truth. So in the relationships that God has given you, do you use them for his glory? Or do you see the relationships God has given you to be used for your own benefit? 
that they exist primarily to serve you, advance your career, or has he given them to you so that you would spread the fame of his name? Fourth, they strive to be faithful in their evangelism while trusting in the sovereignty of God. While trusting in the sovereignty of God. What does this look like? Praying. What does this look like? It looks like praying. And really entrusting to the one who is sovereign, the end results. It's entrusting the end results to the one who is sovereign. The sovereignty of God actually frees them up to lean into faithfulness. Trusting God to work according to his plans and purposes. And so they pray that God would work after having shared the gospel. Right? They're able to lean into faithfulness. And so they lean into faithfulness to the God-given gospel. That is the, the evangel. They lean into faithfulness in terms of receiving God's command to evangelize. They lean into evangelism. That is the actual command. All the while they entrust that God will work as he plans. That he's going to draw people to himself according to his time and purposes. In God's plan, he will bring about the end of gathering in his elect through the God-given means of evangelism. There you see God's sovereignty and evangelism, man's responsibility, working together, all by God's purposes. When it comes to salvation here, in terms of our passage, right, what happens here with this eunuch? He is converted so we have the call, then we looked at the contact, now we have the conversion. Call, contact, conversion. We have this conversion summarized in the fact that he displays his allegiance to Jesus Christ through his baptism there in verse 36. Go ahead and look there. Up until now, these early accounts, you see the evangelists, they would share the gospel. They would call people to repent of their sins and believe, and then they'd say, repent of your sins and be baptized. And then they're added to the church's number. Here, Philip, in this, in this record here, uh, we assume that that whole, that whole process went through and Luke just condenses everything. And the end result is, after the guy had repented of his sins and believed on Jesus Christ, he makes his allegiance to Christ known publicly. Look there at 36 and 38. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. I love his enthusiasm. His enthusiasm to associate himself with Christ through the act of baptism. So if you are a Christian and you have not been baptized as a believer, let me ask you, why not? You see how excited he is here to throw himself within, wholly to Jesus Christ. Baptism, guys, is a public testimony that you have, in fact, thrown in your lot with Christ and that you are a Christian. It symbolizes your death to sin in Christ on account of his death to sin as he died on the cross bearing the wrath that we ourselves deserved so that we would no longer have to face this judgment. He dies, and he dies for all those who are in him. And so sin no longer is over us because of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus went into the grave, so he commands us to go into the water, under the water, symbolizing our death to sin in Christ. But, as you guys know, Christ rose from the dead. Just as Christ came up out of the ground, so we come up out of the water. And that symbolizes our new life in Jesus Christ on account of his new life in Jesus Christ. Or the new life of Jesus Christ. Just as Christ got up from the grave, so we too, having believed on Christ, live a new resurrection life in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We are free to sin and sin's judgment, and we live a new life to God. 
And this public baptism is obviously, it's a public testimony. I am His and He is mine. Praise God that in the last nine to ten years, as people have been faithful to evangelize, many of you, we have had the opportunity to see people baptized here at this church, and it reminds us that God has, in fact, been working to build His church according to His sovereignty. Starting from the time of Acts until now, here in Hacienda Heights, as well as around the world, including Sudan, where this man returns and brings the gospel to. What an encouraging story of how God works sovereignly to fulfill all of His purposes, even through His people in evangelism. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray indeed that you would make us faithful, that we truly would receive your command and call for us to spread the gospel and the fame of your great name. We pray, Lord, that we would have this and experience this great unction by the Spirit's calling <clears throat> and Spirit's power, and that we would call people to repent and believe knowing of the knowing the great joy that is experienced, the joy that is experienced by this man going back to Sudan and by so many other Christians who know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, we pray that indeed we would be people who are grateful for the grace and mercy and steadfast love that you have given to us as sinners. How awesome is it that you invite us into your table and into your house that we might know you as Father. God, we pray that we would be grateful for our salvation given us freely by your grace, and that we would be so eager, even as we depart from this place, to bring the good news of Jesus to other people. In your name we pray. Amen.